this series on Neoplatonism that me and my dear colleagues have put together so far, we have dealt with the topic from various angles and perspectives, both Neoplatonism itself, but also how it has influenced various different religious and philosophical traditions across history. But with all that, there is still a huge hole in the discussion that has yet to be filled, a hole that looks suspiciously like the largest religion in the world, Christianity. Indeed, while it hasn't been properly acknowledged earlier in history, there is no doubt to scholars today that Neoplatonism had a massive influence on the early history and theology of Christianity, helping to shape some of the core features and creeds of that religion. So let's trace some of the places where we can find this relationship between Neoplatonism and Christianity. The first lines of the Gospel of John says, quote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word word is a translation of the Greek term logos, which is a complicated philosophical word. This shows us that even in the Gospels themselves, Christianity was in dialogue with Greek or Hellenic thought. While the religion essentially grew out of Judaism, it's also clear that its origins are intertwined with all the intellectual and religious currents that existed in the Mediterranean region in the first centuries AD. As most of us know, Christianity as we know it didn't happen overnight. After the death of Jesus, there followed many centuries of debates, discussions, divisions, and developments before we reached anything like an orthodoxy or many of the mainstream beliefs that we associate with the religion today. And in all of those developments, Christian thinkers remained in dialogue with other currents and schools of thought. One of these was, of course, the major school of Neoplatonism. While Platonism as a whole is of course traced back to Plato, who lived several centuries BC, Neoplatonism, or Late Platonism, is a further development of that philosophical tradition, the origins of which is usually traced to the 3rd century philosopher Plotinus, and his successors like Porphyry, Iamblichus, and Proclus. If you want a thorough introduction to Plotinus and Neoplatonism as a whole, you should check out my previous video dealing with that topic in particular, as well as the excellent companion videos by my fellow collaborators. But as a very short summary, Neoplatonism, sometimes called Late Platonism, is a late antique development within Platonism, primarily associated with, again, figures like Plotinus. It conceives of existence as consisting of different levels or realities, hypostases in Greek, beginning with the highest one, tohen, which cannot be understood or described in any way, being hidden in a radical apophatic darkness. This one then emanates, or you could say flows over, into something called the nous, which is often translated with words like intellect or mind, which is the archetype of all things in the world and is also, of course, the place of the platonic forms. Nous then also emanates into the so-called soul, or world soul sometimes, which in turn creates the world of nature, or our physical universe of time and space. The Neoplatonists then conceive of a return back from the physical, up the ladder of reality and back to the nous and even to the one. Everything flows from the one and returns to the one, and the goal of the human being is to turn away from physicality and material things, traveling inward and contemplating his true noetic reality, thus returning to his home in the noose and there experiencing a mystical unity with that noose 
and even ultimately with the one itself. Again, this is a criminally short and simplified rundown, and there is a lot more to Neoplatonism and the thought of people like Plotinus, so I really suggest you go watch my earlier dedicated episode first before continuing on, well, with this episode. Neoplatonism quickly became an incredibly widespread and influential school of philosophy and came to prominence around the same time that some of the most influential Christian church fathers and theologians lived and worked, and we find in these thinkers clear indications of their engagement with and influence by the late Platonists. This is perhaps most visible in figures like Origen, the Cappadocian fathers such as Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine, and perhaps, of course, above all, the Pseudo-Dionysius. So what are these indications exactly, and how have they impacted Christianity as a whole? To start off, we can discuss the fascinating figure Origen of Alexandria, a person who has had a quite complicated relationship with Christian orthodoxy. He was an incredibly popular and influential figure in his day, even being considered the first truly Christian theologian, but in later periods, with the formation of orthodoxy, he and his ideas were often criticized and even condemned by the church. You might find it kind of weird to talk about Origen in relation to Neoplatonism. After all, he died before the founder of Neoplatonism itself, Plotinus, so can there really be any connection here at all? Well, one of the things that are so interesting about Origen is that he might have had a personal relationship with Plotinus himself. Indeed, in the Life of Plotinus, written by his student Porphyry, we are told that Plotinus studied in Alexandria under a teacher called Ammonius Succas. He also tells us that Plotinus's fellow students included a guy called Origen. While this is a disputed question, many signs indicate that this Origen and the Christian theologian might be one and the same person. Our origin was from Alexandria, just like Plotinus. He lived at around the same time and also seems to have studied under a teacher called Ammonius. So it is quite possible that Plotinus and Origen studied together and shared the same Platonist teacher, which might give us clues as to why we find ideas in Origen that certainly appear at least somewhat Neoplatonist, or at least certainly Platonist in nature. Origen is famous for a number of ideas and teachings. He wrote and preached several commentaries on biblical scriptures, where he is famous for his strongly allegorical readings. Readings where biblical verses are often given Platonistic interpretation. In these allegorical readings, he drew significantly on predecessors, such as the fellow Alexandrian and first-century Jewish philosopher Philo, another very significant Platonizing figure. Scripture always comes first to Origen, but there is no denying the fact that he interpreted it according to philosophical principles, and specifically Platonism. The story of Adam and Eve seems, at least partly, to be a symbolic story depicting how immaterial souls in the noetic world descend into the material realm. Quote, and the expulsion of the man and woman from paradise, and their being clothed with tunics of skins, which God, because of the transgression of men, made for those who had sinned, contain a certain secret and mystical doctrine, far transcending that of Plato, of the soul's losing its wings and being borne downward to earth until it can lay hold of some stable resting place. And this brings us to one of those really famous teachings of Origen, and one of those that he would be greatly criticized for later, the fact that he believed in the pre-existence of souls. 
In true Platonist fashion, Origen holds that souls exist before they are born into this world. There is, in other words, a kind of hierarchy, the immaterial world of pure souls being above the physical world and our present existence here being a kind of descent downward, partly represented by the fall of Adam and Eve. Indeed, when we look deeper into Origen's theology and cosmology, we find some clear parallels with Platonism and sometimes things that are even close to Neoplatonism. First of all, he conceives of God, Hotheos, in an apophatic way. In other words, our human minds cannot understand or grasp God as he is beyond our conception and things like time and space. God is a perfect immaterial and incorporeal unity, although he does of course include the Son and the Holy Spirit in the system too. There are a few things that are often said to characterize Neoplatonism as it emerged around the same time. As Zevi pointed out in his earlier video on Neoplatonism in Kabbalah, there are often three particular themes that are used to trace Neoplatonism and its influence. Number one is apophaticism or apophatic theology. Number two is the idea of emanation, that reality somehow emanates from this one down to this material world and then returns back to it. And lastly, the idea of unio mystica, that one can become one or united with the highest principle in some way. This is a core feature in, in Neoplatonism, that we are to return from the physical back to the one and become united to the one. So in our discussion about Neoplatonism and Christianity, we're going to keep an eye out for these details of these features in particular, or at least ideas that are similar or, or related to these ideas. We don't find these exact themes in Origen, to be clear, with the possible exception of his relatively mild apophaticism, and this maybe isn't surprising given the fact that he was an older contemporary of Plotinus, but there are a few significant similarities between Origen and, and certainly Platonism, which no one would doubt, but also with Neoplatonism. Origen goes on to talk about the nous, another key platonic concept, and in some spots he seemed to identify God the Father with the nous itself. In other spots, though, he seems to see God the Father as being higher than the nous, which is significant and perhaps predicted the conceptions of the One in Plotinus and his successors. Origen is also very famous and controversial for supposedly holding the idea of apocatastasis, the conception that everything created will at some point return to its origins in perfection. Essentially the idea that everyone or everything will eventually be saved. Hell, in this case, however it is interpreted, is thus not eternal, but everyone there will eventually reach salvation. Origen was accused of holding this idea, even to the point of saying that the devil himself will be saved, and this was another point that he was strongly condemned for. Although scholars will point out that this is somewhat of a misrepresentation, Origen's views are actually a lot more nuanced than that. For sure, though, he seems to hold an idea close to this, which also partly and probably stems back to his Platonism. If God is infinitely good, which Origen presumes, then can he really allow people to suffer forever? It's the age-old question. To Origen, God's goodness seems to preclude that everything will eventually return to its original perfection. Here, I can't help but see that other characteristic Neoplatonic doctrine, that everything flows from the One, and eventually returns back to the One. Here, in Origen, everything must similarly return back to the first principle, which in this case is of course God. So to Origen, a God that is infinitely good cannot possibly allow people to suffer forever. So to Origen, everyone must eventually be saved. 
in the same way in, in a sort of platonic language that everything that comes from the one or God in this case must return to, to God, must return to the one. So everything must go eventually go back to that original perfection in unity with the one. I will admit that these Neoplatonic connections in origin are based on some speculation and stretching things a bit, but we can be sure that he was an important factor in the entrance of Platonism in general into Christian thought, which would later take on the language of Neoplatonism in particular. But just listen to this section of Origin talking about prayer and how the practice of prayer can lead to a contemplation and maybe even union with God and tell me it doesn't sound like a passage straight from Plotinus. Quote, For the eyes of the mind are lifted up from their preoccupation with earthly things and from their being filled with the impression of material things. And they are so exalted that they peer beyond the created order and arrive at the sheer contemplation of God and at conversing with him reverently and suitably as he listens. How would things so great fail to profit those eyes that gaze at the glory of the Lord with unveiled face and that are being changed into his likeness from glory to glory? For then they partake of some divine and intelligible radiance. I mean, come on. As we said, many of these ideas of Origen would eventually be highly criticized and condemned, and he remains a somewhat contested figure. But there's no doubt whatsoever that he still greatly influenced later key Christian church fathers and thinkers, even though they often sort of they cleaned up some of the more controversial aspects of his thought, and he thus had a major impact on Christian theology, even if sometimes indirectly. Even such paradigms of orthodoxy such as Athanasius, a key person in the formation of the doctrine of the Trinity, was massively influenced by Origen. Another group of scholars that clearly took inspiration from the ideas of Origen, and perhaps more directly from Neoplatonism, were the so-called Cappadocian Fathers, which included Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus. It's also worth mentioning the sister of the first two, Macrina, as a significant figure in this context. These Cappadocians are considered some of the most foundational scholars in Christian history and in terms of Christian doctrines, especially in the Eastern Church, or what is often called Orthodox Christianity. The most quote-unquote philosophical of the bunch was probably Gregory of Nyssa. And in his, as well as the others, writings, we continue to see traces of some of those main Neoplatonic themes. It's interesting to point out that among scholars, it's often considered that the category of Christian mysticism, kind of starts with the Cappadocians. While we see traces of it in writings by Origen or maybe even Clement of Alexandria, it's really with writers like Gregory of Nyssa that mysticism starts to become a thing in Christianity properly. And this is perhaps primarily through their discussion of ineffability and apophasis. We mentioned in the earlier episode that the language of what we call mysticism owes a lot to figures like Plotinus in particular and their influence, and that is perhaps visible here. Gregory of Nyssa talks about how God is beyond all human understanding or the ability of our minds to grasp. We can never know the essence of God because God is, per definition, unknowable. These discussions were partly in response to arguments made by the Arians, or really the so-called Neo-Arians, who argued that we can know the essence of God directly through his names. Since God the Father is unbegotten, this very name says something directly about the nature of the Father that we can thus know. 
It also leads to the conclusion that the father is superior to the son, since the son is begotten, whereas the father is unbegotten. Gregory of Nyssa and the Cappadocians are trying to defend the Nicene or Orthodox conception of the Trinity by rejecting any such claims. God is totally unknowable and beyond us. And Gregory really takes this apophaticism to new heights in his writings. Indeed, earlier figures like Origen also spoke of God apophatically, but not to as extreme of a degree as Gregory of Nyssa. Earlier, God may have been infinite and boundless, thus unknowable through the sheer magnitude of, of God, so to say. God is infinite in such a way that no human mind can know him, but it is conceivable that there could be a human that had a perfect, unbounded mind that would be able to know God. But Gregory of Nyssa takes it further. God is completely beyond all categories of knowing altogether. He is so utterly transcendent that our words or minds simply aren't even in the same ballpark. He is not infinite in the sense of extending indefinitely, but in the sense that he is beyond all time and space, beyond all conceptions of limit. In other words, Gregory seems to be a bit closer to someone like Plotinus in his conception of the One. But he also makes some interesting innovations. Because it is with the Cappadocians that we first see the descriptions of God as a darkness. God is the unknowable darkness beyond all things. This way of talking about the absolute principle, which would perhaps get its most full expression in the Pseudo-Dionysius, has become so famous and widely used to talk about the Platonic One that I even used this kind of language in my video on Neoplatonism, even though Plotinus himself never really describes the One in this way. Earlier, the One was talked about in terms of, of light more so, right? But it is with Gregory that we see this language of darkness. God, or, or in Plotinian language, the One, is an utter darkness of unknowing. And this is the first time we see this language, and this would become incredibly influential, very popular, especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church. This way of talking about God uh, and uh, in, in mysticism, uh, so to say, is incredibly widespread and popular. And it kind of starts with the Cappadocians and with Gregory in particular. The Cappadocians were greatly influenced by Origen, even though they cleaned up many of the more controversial aspects associated with him. Whether they were directly influenced by Neoplatonism, perhaps having read Plotinus or Porphyry, is more uncertain. A lot of the ideas definitely seem to remind us of someone like Plotinus, but this could very well have been indirectly through, for example, the Platonizing tendencies of Origen. There is no clear, direct evidence that they read the original pagan Neoplatonist, even though many want to argue for this position. But, for example, they seem to pick up on the idea of apocatastasis, especially Gregory of Nyssa. Just like Origen, he seems to argue that everything comes from God, perhaps even emanates from God, but that it must eventually also return back to God. This means that everyone or everything will be saved, right? Punishment is not eternal for anyone, rather being a kind of purification. But in true Neoplatonic fashion, he argues for the idea of the outflow and inflow, going out and returning back, that is such a key feature of Neoplatonism. So already we have found two of those main characteristics that we mentioned earlier, the apophaticism and the emanation, although slightly modified of course. But we can even find that third feature, the idea of unio mystica or mystical union. 
Indeed, a very central theme for the Cappadocians and for much of later theology, especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church, is the concept of theosis, or literally becoming God. Gregory of Nazianzus, together with figures like Athanasius, liked to say, quote, God became human so that we might become God. Theosis is a complex topic and one that can often be misunderstood, but in short terms it's basically the idea that the ultimate goal is one of uniting with God, which has been a prominent feature of orthodoxy throughout history. The Russian Orthodox theologian Vladimir Lossky wrote, quote, The theological doctrines which have been elaborated in the course of these struggles can be treated in the most direct relation to the vital end, that of union with God, to the attainment of which they are subservient. This uniting with God has been interpreted in many different ways by different people and theologians, but generally it does not mean that the person becomes directly united or become one with God in his essence, but rather that he somehow participates in the divine life, as some would put it. Indeed, this very point was the source for the so-called hesychast controversy in the Eastern Orthodox Church that erupted in the Middle Ages where great thinkers like Gregory Palamas would formulate a very influential distinction between God's essence and his energies. Now, this is a complicated topic in itself, and I've dedicated a full previous episode uh, to that if you want to check it out. Nonetheless, the theme of theosis, or uniting with God, has become a key feature of Orthodox Christianity, and we can find this idea already in the Cappadocians. Quote, in the unfathomable darkness, one communes with God through faith. Gregory of Nyssa talks about faith as the faculty of union, as opposed to Plotinus's emphasis on the higher nous, or intellect. And Gregory has a fascinating perspective on union, one that teaches that this experience is one that never ends. Since God is infinite, the person in faith never stops traveling. In other words, the journey never ends. Quote, this truly is the vision of God, never to be satisfied in the desire to see him. No limit would interrupt growth in the ascent to God, since no limit to the good can be found, nor is the increasing of desire for the good brought to an end because it is satisfied. But all these themes of apophatic darkness, emanation, and mystical union find their most dramatic expression in antiquity with the absolutely fascinating figure of Pseudo-Dionysius. Here, my job gets kind of easy, because finding Neoplatonic themes in Pseudo-Dionysius isn't exactly much of a challenge. He is one of the most significant and interesting characters in the history of mysticism, apophaticism, and esotericism, and what makes this extra juicy is that we don't even know who he was. He took on the name, or claimed to be, Dionysius the Areopagite, an obscure figure in the Bible that became a Christian when Paul visited Athens. He is literally mentioned once in passing in the New Testament, and the author that we are talking about claimed to be this figure, and to have witnessed significant events in the Bible, such as seeing the thunderstorm that happened as a result of Jesus' crucifixion. We know with pretty strong confidence that he isn't who he says he is, though, and it is widely accepted that the so-called pseudo-Dionysius wrote his works hundreds of years after the biblical stories. In particular, scholars argue that he must have been active around the year 500 AD. Why are we so sure about this? Well, because in his writings he seems to borrow a lot directly from the Neoplatonist writer Proclus, who died in 485. 
and the first instances where Pseudo-Dionysius' writings are mentioned by others are a few decades into the 6th century. So he must have written his works somewhere in between those dates, after Proclus, because he seems to be so heavily influenced by the writings of Proclus, but before, of course, when the first uh, outside authors mention his writings. And this puts him somewhere around the year 500 AD. So we don't know who he was, and we don't know really when he lived, although we do have a pretty good idea of the general period. What we do know is that he wrote some works that are incredible and that would be massively influential. Not only did he pioneer apophatic theology and take it to a whole new level, uh, played a massive role in how we use the word mystic and mysticism today, but he also basically invented the word hierarchy through his use of the term in works like the celestial hierarchy and the ecclesiastical hierarchy, ecclesiastices hierarchias, where he maps out the, well, hierarchy of the angelic realms and worldly church. But he's perhaps most famous, at least in connection to our discussion today, for two other works, the Divine Names, Theon Honomatum, and the Mystical Theology, Mystices Theologias. These are two true masterpieces of apophaticism and mysticism that would have a lasting impact until today. Indeed, the word mysticism, which we often contest and question in its broader use, comes, of course, out of a Christian framework in particular, and in a way it is here, with the mystical theology of Pseudo-Dionysius, that the term starts being used in a way that we would recognize today. So the whole concept of mysticism as we know it, in some ways can be traced to Pseudo-Dionysius. When we read the mystical theology, which is a rather short work, it's a very short work actually, we find an author that is primarily concerned with the unknowable nature of God, with a strongly apophatic theology where God cannot be grasped by the mind, but rather only experienced through going into the darkness beyond all things where God dwells. And in fact, one of the things that strike us the most about his writings is just how Neoplatonic he is. Indeed, his Neoplatonism is so strong and prominent that many scholars are unsure whether to characterize him as a Neoplatonizing Christian or a Christianizing Neoplatonist. In particular, he seems to follow and adapt very closely the form of Neoplatonism associated with the aforementioned Proclus, author of works like the Elements of Theology. In any case, Pseudo-Dionysius, whoever he was, is clearly working from a Neoplatonist philosophical framework and is using that framework in service of a Christian theology which he uses to interpret scripture. In all of this, it is that apophaticism and divine darkness that is at the core of his teachings. As Vladimir Losky writes when talking about Pseudo-Dionysius, quote, Now God is beyond all that exists. In order to approach him, it is necessary to deny all that is inferior to him, that is to say, all that which is. If in seeing God one can know what one sees, then one has not seen God in himself, but something intelligible, something which is inferior to him. It is by unknowing that one may know him who is above every possible object of knowledge. Proceeding by negations, one ascends from the inferior degrees of being to the highest, by progressively setting aside all that can be known in order to draw near to the unknown in the darkness of absolute ignorance. God is utterly beyond anything created or anything that can be imagined. 
basically identical to the Platinian one. To quote-unquote know God, one has to abandon all forms of knowing. The only path to God is through unknowing, where we enter into the darkness of unknowing within ourselves, and there God is. Union with God is a process of removing all things until only that divine darkness remains. Again, as we said with Gregory of Nyssa, this talk about God as darkness was incredibly revolutionary and would be taken up by thinkers for the rest of history. It is a brilliant way of talking about these Neoplatonic concepts that has become very popular across the board. In the mystical theology, Dionysius uses a fascinating example from scripture to talk about and justify this conception of the divine, namely the story of Moses' ascent of Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. This event, while it may have happened in a literal sense too, is read allegorically or esoterically as a description of an inward ascent. When Moses goes up the mountain, he is really going inward, away from all people or outside concepts, contemplating the depths within himself, or rather going through the gradual process of unknowing, of casting off all conceptions or knowledge as we usually define it. Eventually he reaches the peak, and as the book of Exodus very tellingly says, quote, Then the people stood at a distance, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Dionysius thus finds the language of darkness here directly in the Bible, and he thus finds perfect parallels with his Neoplatonic philosophical leanings. He talks about this peak of Moses' journey and the mystical path in a very Platinian way. Quote, but then he, Moses, breaks free of them, away from what sees and is seen, and he plunges into the truly mysterious darkness of unknowing. Here, renouncing all that the mind may conceive, Wrapped entirely in the intangible and the invisible, he belongs completely to him who is beyond everything. Here, being neither oneself or someone else, one is supremely united to the completely unknown by an inactivity of all knowledge, and knows beyond the mind by knowing nothing. Pseudo-Dionysius is a really fascinating figure. He was both incredibly criticized and even called a heretic shortly after he lived, but he has also become one of the most influential thinkers in the history of Christianity, especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church, where his ideas are basically part of mainstream theology. He had a few rough centuries, but by the Middle Ages, people like Thomas Aquinas were commenting on his works as a major church authority, thus cementing him as a key figure in the history of, of Christian thought. We also find clear influences from Dionysius in one of the most famous medieval Christian Catholic mystics, Meister Eckhart. Eckhart similarly talks about how God's ground and the ground of the soul is identical, and that this ground is a kind of darkness deep within the reality of the soul and of all things. In general, the thought of Meister Eckhart is greatly Neoplatonic in nature. Not only does he adopt the radical apophaticism of Pseudo-Dionysius, but also talks about the creation of the world through outflow and inflow, usgang and ingang in Middle High German, literally going out and going in. God emanates or overflows into the universe, which eventually must always return back to its origins in the divine ground. The goal of the human being is to detach from all created things and break through into the ground where God and the soul are one and the same ground. Quote, Now know, all of our perfection and our holiness rests in this. 
that a person must penetrate and transcend everything created and temporal and all being and go into the ground that has no ground. Or, in the words of the scholar Bernard McGinn, quote, Eckhart's mystical way will be an invitation to the soul to give up the nothingness of its created self in order to become the divine nothing that is also all things. This language of Eckhart is not only very Neoplatonic, as you can clearly see, but also strongly pseudo-Dionysian in its emphasis on the divine as a kind of nothingness or darkness. And we continue to see this influence in thinkers connected to or similar to Eckhart, such as his students Henry Suso and Johannes Thaler, or later thinkers like Nicholas of Cusa. And speaking of Catholicism, some of its most foundational figures also had a connection to Neoplatonism. While the Catholic and Orthodox churches generally share the same church fathers and key figures, different ones often play different roles in these two branches. The Cappadocians and Pseudo-Dionysius are more emphasized in the Orthodox Church, for example, even though they are, of course, very important for the Western branch too. But perhaps the most significant early figure for Catholicism, or the Western Church, is after all Augustine, whose works and thought would lay the groundwork for much of the Latin Church for the rest of history. He was, as many of you will know, originally an admirer of the religion of Manichaeism, founded by the prophet Mani in the 3rd century. Later, though, he also deeply studied Neoplatonism, and was devoted to that philosophical school before converting to Christianity. And even as a Christian, while he would of course strongly disagree with and criticize much of quote-unquote pagan philosophy, we can also see that he brings a lot of his Neoplatonism with him and applies it to his new understanding of the Christian faith. Indeed, in his famous Confessions, he basically states that it was studying the works of the Neoplatonist that led him to the truth of Christianity, thus affirming that figures like Plotinus and Porphyry had reached certain truths about the divine, even though they never accepted Christianity and could be saved, so to say. Augustine's Neoplatonism is definitely there, even though it is often modified, and can be seen in works like On the Trinity, where he talks about the mind as a kind of, well, as a trinity. We can see clear similarities here with figures like Plotinus and other Platonists and their idea of mind. Firstly, the idea that we are ultimately immaterial souls that survive the body, but also in the more particular ideas about how the mind works in a metaphysical sense. But while Plotinus would conceive of the mind or intellect, the nous, as twofold, it is a mind that is contemplating itself, thus being both that which contemplates and that which is contemplated, Augustine builds on this model, but creates his own version based on his Christian faith. Since humans are made in the image of God, as the Bible says, this means that the Trinity can be found or reflected in the constitution of the human being, specifically in the mind. He presents various ways in which the human mind or soul can be said to be a Trinity, landing on a division into memory, understanding, and will. Now, just like in the episode on Neoplatonism in Islam, we should remember that figures like Augustine and other scholars we have talked about don't see themselves as taking Neoplatonism and applying it to Christianity, or of trying to fit Christianity into a Neoplatonic framework, or the other way around. Rather, they saw philosophies like Platonism as rational ways of talking about or thinking about what they already believed through scripture of explaining rationally things that they could already find in scriptures. It was a useful language that could lead to certainty on the intellectual plane, 
but it was always secondary to Revelation. Nonetheless, we can clearly see Platonic or perhaps Neoplatonic influence on Augustine and his anthropology, epistemology, and even theology. In general, though, the later Middle Ages and the rise of scholasticism in the Catholic West, to generalize, saw a move away from Platonism and more strongly toward a kind of rationalizing Aristotelianism, represented above all by figures like Thomas Aquinas. This cannot be said to the same degree in Eastern Orthodoxy, which always kept these features as core aspects of their tradition, but in the Catholic and later Protestant churches, there was less emphasis on Platonist thinking and thus things like mysticism. But of course, remember that we are greatly generalizing now too. We do see a kind of Platonist revival in Western Christianity during the Renaissance with figures like Marsilio Ficino and Pico della Mirandola, which is definitely a topic that can be explored in another full episode. But Neoplatonism was for a long time ignored as a major influence on Christianity, including in scholarship, and its role has of course been significantly decreased in the last few centuries. It's only relatively recently that scholars have once again realized just how influential Neoplatonism really was not just on Christianity, but on Western thought and religion in general. Returning to the earliest centuries, it isn't just true that significant church fathers and early theologians employed Platonist concepts and thinking in service of Christian theology. A lot of the very theological language that was used in the great debates and councils were heavily flavored by the philosophical language at the time. All the debates about the Trinity or the nature of Christ could not have been had in the same way that it was without the philosophical basis of schools like Neoplatonism to frame those discussions in. Just consider the basic doctrine of the Trinity as it became canonized in its orthodox form in the Council of Nicaea and, of course, in subsequent developments after that, including the important works of the Cappadocians, which we talked about. In conceptualizing how the Trinity works, mainstream Christianity decided that God is one in substance or essence, using the Greek word ousia, but he is three in hypostases, which is usually translated as persons. But the term hypostases, the singular of which is hypostasis, is the term used by Plotinus to talk about the three realities of his metaphysical system, the one, the nous, and the soul. In other words, Christian theology and dogma was formed using concepts and words from schools like Neoplatonism. Today, as we said, it isn't talked about as much as it maybe should be. There are Christians who take influence from Neoplatonism, either directly or indirectly, the Platonizing doctrines of figures like the Pseudo-Dionysius and Gregory of Nyssa continue to be foundational for the Eastern Orthodox Church, whose mysticism and apophatic theology remind us a lot of this larger tradition. In the Western churches, its presence is harder to see, but with the increased popularity of figures like Meister Eckhart among some people today, we can see Neoplatonic ideas popping up here as well. This has inevitably been a very brief and inadequate introduction to this topic, just a way of looking at the, some of the general ways that Neoplatonism and Christianity have interacted throughout history, especially in the earliest developments of the church. Um, of course, many of these topics that we have discussed, including people like Pseudo-Dionysius, all definitely deserve and maybe will get dedicated episodes that we can go through them more properly and in depth. But I hope this episode has at least piqued your interest a little bit. 
And for sure, the many ways that Neoplatonism has influenced and interacted with Christianity shows us once again just how influential and important this school, if we can call it a school, of philosophy has really been throughout history. I'll see you next time.